It was a clear summer's night in a small town in Germany when 71 souls fell from the sky, raining down all over a town and rural area called Überlingen. Nobody survived. July 2nd, 2002, a 46-year-old devoted husband and father of two children sits and waits at the airport in Barcelona for his family's arrival. The flight has not arrived and is seemingly late, but yet he can't get any information from the staff about where this flight is. This flight never shows up. What does show up is the media. A horrific accident occurred in the air, leaving this man a widow and childless, and he had no idea. This man is Russian architect Vitaly Kalyov, and he decides to take justice into his own hands. Some people see him as a hero, and others as a cold-blooded murderer. This is the case of Flight 2937 and the aftermath of a grieving father taking law and punishment into his own hands. What caused this accident that killed Vitaly's wife and children, and who did he blame for their deaths? Well, come hang out with me while I talk true crime. Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. This week, we are looking at a horrific accident that led to revenge murder two years later. Let's start at the beginning. July 1st, 2002, at 10.48 p.m., a passenger aircraft from Moscow, Russia, departed with 60 passengers and nine crew heading to Barcelona, Spain. This was a last-minute flight chartered specifically for 45 passengers. These 45 passengers were all school children going on a trip. The children had missed their first flight due to an error, but they were rescheduled to be on this flight, Flight 2937. Also on this flight was Vitaly's wife, Svetlana, and his two children, 10-year-old Constantine and 4-year-old Diana. Svetlana and her two children were also offered this last-minute charter, as the flight they were supposed to be on had sold out. I'm not sure if they were bumped from that flight or if they were on, it was a standby situation, but when Svetlana got a call asking if she wanted to get on this last-minute flight, she and her children rushed to the airport to catch it. Vitaly was flying them out to Spain to meet up with him as he wanted to treat his family to a vacation. He had been working in Spain for the last two years and the contract of his job, it was ending. So before leaving Spain, he wanted to take his kids to the museums in Barcelona and he wanted to show his son things like the dinosaur exhibits because his son loved dinosaurs. Although he had been working in Spain those last two years, he did fly home on some weekends and for holidays. Vitaly, he would spend hours on the phone while he was away living in Barcelona, talking to his daughter Diana in Moscow. Even though when he left, she was only two years old, but she learned how to call him. She memorized his phone number and would call him all the time. And Vitaly, he had all the time in the world for his children. 
he would be on the phone for hours listening to his little girl murmur off nursery rhymes and talk about her day, which is just a very cute picture, very wholesome. When I hear that, I think of this big, burly, tough Russian man sitting on the phone listening to his two-year-old daughter sing to him and he's he's loving every second of it. He's got a little smile on his face and there's, you know, he just, that's what he wants to be doing. He wants to be talking to his daughter. That's who Vitaly is though. He had all the time in the world for his family. To say Vitaly is a family man is a massive understatement. He lived for his family. He succeeded for his family. He was known to be an incredibly passionate man, not just with his work, but for his family. Vitaly is, he's a strong, stoic, proud Russian man. By all means, he is not somebody I would ever want to cross. Vitaly and Svetlana, they had been married 11 years at this point, and his family was the center of his pride, the center of his his life. He loved his wife and children with everything he had. They lived in a beautiful three-story brick home he had designed and built for them in Russia. He provided everything they could ever need, and he wanted to do this. He loved doing this for his family. It was in the year 2000 he was offered a job in Spain on that two-year contract. And this job was for him to go over there and to assist in building this mansion for a a wealthy Russian man who was building a mansion in, in Barcelona. He didn't want to be away from his family or his beloved Russia, but due to some business related issues, he had to take this job to stay afloat. So he did. This brings us to July 1st, 2002. Vitaly's contract is up, he's no longer working on this job, and he wants to fly his family to the place where he had been living and working for the last two years to show them around and have a nice family vacation. There was a total of 69 passengers on flight 2937, and like I said, 45 were school children, and there were also nine staff included, uh, as well as Vitaly's family and other passengers who also got on this last-minute chartered flight to Barcelona from Moscow. The flight departed at 10.48 p.m., but it never made it to Barcelona. According to what I looked up on Google, a direct flight from Moscow to Barcelona takes about four to five hours. And there is a one-hour time difference, which would mean flight 2937 would have landed around 3 a.m. Barcelona time, had it made it. Vitaly was waiting for this plane to land. This plane was carrying the most important people in the world to him, and it was nowhere to be seen. Eventually, media crews start arriving, and Vitaly, he has no idea why they are there, thinking, why is the media here? One of the members from the media approaches Vitaly and asks him, are you waiting for flight 2937 from Moscow? And he says yes. What the reporter does next is completely heartless and cold. The reporter has a cameraman filming and says something about condolences. Vitaly has no idea what's going on. He has no idea there has been an accident. And this is how he is slowly figuring this out. He asks the reporter, what are you talking about? Like, why are you giving me condolences? The reporter then tells Vitaly, Well, there has been a mid-air collision and the planes went down over Germany. Vitaly, he denies this reporter's news. He doesn't trust them. He won't believe that this is real. He won't believe that 
the plane his family was on is not going to arrive and, and that it's crashed somewhere. He thinks that that can't be, that maybe the media is blowing it out of proportion or they're making a story of something small that happened. Maybe the plane had to have an emergency landing. He didn't know, but he wasn't about to believe that his family was dead. Vitaly eventually learns the location of this plane crash and where these planes landed. So he jumps on the next plane to Zurich, Switzerland. And from there, he drives two hours to Germany to the town of Überlingen. And he wants to assess this scene for himself. He makes it there very quickly. And so where this plane went down, it was right on the border of uh, Germany and Switzerland. And he, he did not waste a single second to get there. So he flies into Zurich and Switzerland, drives down to Überlingen in Germany. And when he gets there, all of a sudden, everything is real. What he sees would have been horrifying. Two mangled giant aircrafts had came crashing to the ground and the evidence was scattered everywhere. The smell of jet fuel and twisted metal was all around him. The closer he got, he's getting closer. He's seeing shrapnel from these planes all over the ground. He's smelling this smell of definitely something wrong has happened and when he gets there bodies are being recovered and, and taking taken off the scene so far there were no survivors and unfortunately there would never be any survivors this was the darkest day in Vitaly's life and it was about to get darker the night flight 2937 took off for Barcelona. The passenger plane made direct contact in the air over Germany with a DHL cargo plane. There were a total of 71 lives lost in the tragic accident, 69 aboard the passenger plane and two aboard the cargo plane. It seemed there had been an error made that night, which resulted in this terrible, just absolutely horrific accident. The passenger plane carrying the 69 souls had been torn in half, not in half, I believe in like three different pieces in the air, which meant people were ripped from the cabins and bodies were spread all over a large distance of land. Vitaly, he wanted to look for his family. He wanted to find them. He was determined to find his wife and children. July 3rd, the next day, his four-year-old daughter, Diana, was found by a young woman whose father owned a farm in the area. Diana was wearing her little pink dress and the pearl necklace Vitaly had given her as a present was broken and scattered all over the area. Vitaly was brought to the scene and he collected the broken necklace from the ground, which is such a heartbreaking image. This man sweeping around on this long grass, looking for these pearls that have broken off his four-year-old daughter's necklace, collecting them and putting them in his pocket. It is just, it's too much. It is just so sad. And he also said he was going to carry them on him forever so sad. His 10-year-old son's body was discovered as well, but unlike Diana, Constantine, he did not land in a in a bushy area. His fall was not cushioned by trees and, and grass. Constantine, he had a much more 
brutal fate and he landed on pavement in a rural area by a bus stop. I didn't exactly hear his condition, but I would assume it's no condition any parent should ever have to see their child in. Vitaly, he did though. He went to the morgue to see his son, and the scene was so horrific, Vitaly smashed his own head against the wall multiple times. Svetlana's body was soon after discovered in a cornfield. It was now very real to Vitaly that his wife and children were no longer with him. There wasn't a shadow of a doubt anymore. He had seen their bodies. I couldn't even imagine what he must have felt during this time I don't I couldn't even imagine what he's thinking I don't know if he was blaming himself I don't know if he was having all these woulda coulda shoulda thoughts I could just imagine he was just totally overwhelmed it would probably be really hard for him to even explain what he was feeling probably rage probably a lot of rage was he blaming himself for making these vacation plans was he wishing he never would have taken that job in Barcelona? Was he regretting not just returning home to Russia when his contract was up instead of flying his family out to him? It's hard to say exactly what he was thinking. But of course, none of that would have been helpful because none of that, like none of anything that happened, none, nothing is his fault. Nothing is his fault. How was he to know that a routine flight would end in such tragedy? There was no way for him to know. He had been flying back and forth for two years now. And plane crashes, they're very rare, especially colliding in the air. But who was there to blame? How did this happen? These are questions we know for sure Vitaly was asking. He didn't immediately jump to figuring out the details from the crash. He had priorities he had to deal with then and there. He had to get his wife and children home to Russia. He wanted to lay them to rest in a funeral there. And he and he did that. He he got his wife and kids back to Russia. The entire community was in mourning over this. This had hurt everybody so much. This was massive in Russia. This had affected so many people. The grave for Svetlana, Konstantin, and Diana, it was a large family plot, which allowed them to be buried together. There's a massive headstone with a gorgeous family photo, including his wife and children. And they're smiling, and it's a beautiful photo, massive headstone. And the top of this grave, it looks like polished concrete. It's one of the nicest graves I think I've ever seen. Beautiful. I don't think it, it's, it's not just a grave. It, it looks like a memorial as well, like a very long lasting, beautiful, amazing memorial. So Vitaly, he would spend a lot of time there over the next year, even spending nights at it. Thinking about Vitaly sleeping beside his wife and children's grave, that is just another haunting image in this case. It's just, it's so incredibly sad. Let's just talk about the plane crash for a moment here. There were a lot of families needing answers. So many. So many families were affected by this accident. And plane crashes, as you can imagine, they don't just go uninvestigated. They need to figure out exactly what went wrong. 
especially this one where two planes collided at 36,000 feet in a relatively quiet airspace time. Something very negligent happened here. The question was, who fell asleep at the wheel? Was it the pilots? Was it weather conditions? Was it traffic controllers? Was it a mixture of a lot of unfortunate errors? Let's find out. A lot of these options were explored and a lot of them were coming up clean. The pilots of both aircrafts were in perfect shape and, and health for this journey. There were no drugs or alcohol found in their systems and there was nothing to suggest anything happened like a stroke or a heart attack. As for the weather, it was it was checked out and that night it was clear and easy flying weather. Had nothing to do with the weather, nothing to do with the pilots. So what happened? Since the planes went down in Germany, it was the German Federal Bureau of Aircraft Accident Investigations. What a title. Wow, that's a mouthful. They were looking into this and something just tells me you can count on them to be very thorough. They just sound very professional. <laughs> just that job title. When the planes collided in the air, they were under Swiss air navigation. It was a service called Sky Guide. Even though the planes went down in Germany, it was very close to Switzerland. So this was right on the border and it, it was Switzerland's airspace that they were responsible for. So it was this service provider who was controlling that airspace. Their job is to make sure that this exact situation doesn't happen. But it did. So what happened? Let's hear what Sky Guide had to say for themselves. They said, hey, we did nothing wrong here. This was not our fault and we apologize to nobody. That's essentially what they said. That is not a word for word quote, but that's their attitude. That's what's happening. The investigation team, they needed more proof of this. They couldn't just be like, oh, Sky Guide said they had nothing to do with this. I mean, nobody look at them anymore. No, they needed to really look into this and they did. They, they investigated. The investigation team, they needed more proof. They need to in, investigate it. They need to see, did Sky Guide have something to do with this? Was there an error on, on their end? Sky Guide is under a full investigation and they tell them, yeah, we warned the pilot to drop down a thousand feet to make sure they wouldn't collide. And we thought they did until we saw the bleeps on the screen disappear. Well, there must be more to the story than that. The air controller, he said he tried to radio the passenger plane once the bleeps fell off the screen, but he had no luck hearing anything back. Th I can imagine that that is, first of all, completely true because we know that the plane did go down. And I could imagine that the silence on the radio would have been absolutely gut-wrenching to that air controller at that time. Because he's probably saying, hey, are you okay? What's happened? You've gone off and it's just radio silence. That would have been just a, a very haunting silence. The air traffic controller, he would have just been sitting there holding his breath, waiting for a response to see if a fatal accident had been avoided or not. And 
as he's waiting for that, there's just this catastrophe happening in the sky and 71 people were ejected from 35, 36,000 feet in the air. Um, and a response never came back. And the bodies were just all fallen to the ground. It's, it's, it's beyond believable. Although nothing had been proven yet, the public was pointing their finger at this sky guide company and the air traffic controller whose job it was to make sure this horrific accident didn't happen. He was at the end of these fingers. Since there was only one air traffic controller in the control room that night, the public and Vitaly, they wanted his name. This man's name was not released at this time, nor was it ever until his death two years after the accident. In 2003, which is one year later, Vitaly, he is dripping in grief. He is wearing all of the stress from the year, all of the sadness from the year on his face. He has just aged so incredibly quickly. He had refused to shave after his wife and kids died, and now his beard was going gray. It was very bushy. It was completely untouched since July 2nd, 2002. It was here in 2003, a memorial service was held. And this is where Vitaly spotted the Sky Guide CEO, Alan Rossier, who had attended to show his condolences to the family who had lost loved ones. So if his company had nothing to do with this, why is he at this memorial? Is what I first wondered. Vitaly, he knows who this man is and he knows he has to talk to him and he has to show him pictures of his dead children and that's what he does when Vitaly is held back by Alan's bodyguards because yes this man brought bodyguards with him so it's all looking like a lot of guilt here um the guards push him back, push Vitaly back from Alan and Vitaly screams, you killed my children. Vitaly also expressed how he wanted to talk to the CEO of Sky Guide and Alan, he actually agreed, but not there. He set up a meeting in the Sky Guide headquarters so they could uh, talk privately. Vitaly, he wanted vengeance. He wanted justice he decided that he would feel better he would sleep better if he personally punished the man responsible for killing his family i'm not sure if he had totally confirmed this decision in his head at this point but we do see that later when he got to that meeting in the air traffic controller was nowhere to be seen he wasn't there uh he demanded to be given the name of that air traffic controller and Sky Guide refused. They were protecting this, this worker. Sky Guide was still refusing to take any of the responsibility, by the way, at this point. They were not taking responsibility. They weren't apologizing to anybody, but yet they're going to this memorial service with bodyguards. So I don't know what's going on there. As far as Sky Guide thought, they had nothing to do with this accident. According to them, it must have been the pilots' fault. They were still blaming the pilots. What's strange about that is if Sky Guide actually thought they were innocent in all of this, then why did they offer Vitaly money for the death of his wife and kids? That's right. Sky Guide offered him a payout to leave them alone. How much did Sky Guide think Vitaly's wife and children's lives were worth? 
Well, for Svetlana, they offered 60,000 francs. And for his children's deaths, they offered him 50,000 Swiss francs. This is so disgusting. This is so disgusting that they did this. And I'm not sure why they thought that this would work. Vitaly is clearly a man of passion. He's very upset. He's looking very hard for somebody to be held accountable and responsible for the deaths of his family. You're not just going to make him go away with some Swiss francs. He's not trying to track down the guilty party for compensation. He wants justice or revenge. Whichever gets served first is fine with him. Vitaly and Sky Guide, they don't speak anymore after that they offer Vitaly this money. I'm not sure what happened, but they, I don't know if it's legal reasons. I don't know what happened, but they can't speak to each other anymore. But Vitaly, he's not going to stop. He's not going to stop looking for the person responsible for this accident. So he hires a private investigator. He tells the private investigator, hey, I need to know the guy's name who was the air traffic controller that night who was responsible for that airspace because I don't want to do anything sinister. Don't think that. No, I just want to expose him to the public for what he did. I want to get him in into the media. I want to get the media talking about this again. The PI, he takes the job on. He agrees. And eight weeks later, the PI has all the information Vitaly needs and wants about this air traffic controller. And now Vitaly knows not only the name of the air traffic controller, but he knows where the man lives. He knows what his hobbies are. He knows when he goes jogging. He knows what he looks like. He knows his what his wife and kids look like. Basically, he's this private eye doesn't know it, but he's sealing this man's fate by handing this over to Vitaly. The air traffic controller that Sky Guide refused to name was 36-year-old father of three and husband Peter Nielsen. It's now two years after the crash, and finally Vitaly had a face for his dartboard. What do you think he's going to do with this information? Well, he goes to Switzerland on February 21st in 2014, and he checks into a hotel room near Peter Nielsen's home. Vitaly, he doesn't do anything immediately. He must have been thinking about what his plan was, and then three days later, he made up his mind. On February 24th, he walks to the address of Peter Nielsen, a neighbor sees him and a neighbor comes out and is wondering, who are you? What are you doing here? And when the two, I don't know if they greet each other or what, but they end up coming into contact with each other. And Vitaly, he's got an envelope and it's got Peter's, Peter Nielsen's name on it. He holds it up and the neighbor motions him in the direction of uh, Peter Nelson's home to Peter Nelson's home. Vitaly, he saunters into the yard sits down and waits. He's not furious. He's not outraged. He's just sitting there calmly waiting to meet the man he believes is responsible for his family's demise. Peter Nielsen, he is home. He's home with his wife and his three children. And eventually he comes outside to see what this grief weathered gray-haired man wants this man he has no idea who it is when peter says 
who are you? Uh, Vitaly, he responds with the most terrifying answer I could imagine you could ever hear when you ask somebody that. And Vitaly, he responds, he says, I am Russia. That is, that, uh, yep, that's going to be scary. Peter was still confused. That did not answer his question. Um, He probably could have guessed, though, where this was going or or what this was about. Vitaly, he had brought with him in that envelope pictures of his children after they had died. You could just imagine these were very unsettling, graphic, hard-to-look-at images. And he wanted to show Peter these. He wanted to show him the weight and the severity of the horrific death that his family endured. Vitaly, he thrusted those images against Peter's body. And Peter, he says to Vitaly, he says, what, what do you want from me? That is not what Vitaly wanted to hear. He wanted someone to take responsibility and explain to him what exactly happened. And he wasn't getting what he needed. So Vitaly, he told Peter, you thought you could do this and go unpunished. What would you feel if you saw your children in coffins? Peter then knocked the photos of Vitaly's dead children to the ground. And this was just too much for Vitaly to handle. And what Vitaly does next is, it's brutal. Vitaly pulled out a knife and stabbed Peter to death. Witnessing this was Peter's three children and his wife, but there was nothing anybody could do. Peter was stabbed three times and died within two minutes. That knife was discovered near the scene of the crime in a snowbank. Later, Vitaly would say he didn't remember stabbing Peter. He just remembers everything going black, and then he remembers being covered in blood in his hotel room. So he's, yeah, he says he doesn't remember doing the stabbing, but he did bring that knife to Peter's house. He did buy that knife when he arrived in Switzerland. Once back at his hotel room, Vitaly, he started drinking and washing himself in vodka. So he starts drinking lots of vodka. He's washing his his hands. He's washing this blood off in, in vodka. And he went to bed. He showered. I think he got rid of the the clothes he was wearing maybe he threw them out not really sure maybe just took them off he said that that night he slept nightmare free free of nightmares for the first time since his family died the day he stabs somebody to death he sleeps without a single nightmare when police had arrived at the scene uh where peter was stabbed they arrived just after 6.30 p.m. and Peter had already died. Peter's wife gave the police a description of the man who killed her husband and it didn't take them long to figure out who it was. The next day, almost 24 hours after the stabbing, police, they find Vitaly in that hotel room. They go to his hotel to arrest him and he's, he's there he's there he's not fleeing he's not he's he's just there and he graciously says to them it took you this long that's what he said he's just like "Mm." the police show up and they're like hey um you stabbed someone to death 
and he's just like, oh, well, I can't believe it took you this long to come find me. Vitaly, he could have fled back to Russia. He could have fled to multiple other countries, and he could have been very far away from the scene of the crime, but he didn't. And I'm thinking he didn't flee Switzerland because Vitaly, he is not a coward at all. Yeah, he is definitely not a coward. He would not run from his actions as he believed what he did was just. Police police didn't see it the same as him and he was arrested. Police wanted a confession, but they didn't get it right away. There was quite a bit of evidence gathered, such as blood evidence and also proof that Vitaly had bought that knife he used to stab Peter with when he first arrived in Switzerland. They weren't lacking evidence, but they wanted this confession. Even though Vitaly says he doesn't remember actually doing the stabbing, he does kind of confess. He essentially said, yeah, I probably did kill that guy, but I don't remember doing it. Vitaly was placed in a psychiatric clinic upon his arrest because he was suicidal. He was dealing with a lot of stuff. Basically, he needed to be assessed and he needed to be watched. Could he even be fit to stand trial? That was another question. Eventually, he beat one of the doctors in a bunch of chess games. And that's when the doctor reported, yeah, he's fine to stand trial. So I guess that's one way to assess that. But what was happening in the media? Up until this point, Peter Nielsen's name had never been in the media before. Vitaly believed Sky Guide was purposefully isolating and silencing Peter and that he was allowed to keep his job because he was not terminated. He kept his job at Sky Guide after this accident. And Vitaly believed that was the company's way of bribing Peter to keep him quiet about what had happened that night in the control room. First, let's look at how the public responds to the news that Vitaly tracked down and killed the air traffic controller on duty the night the planes crashed and 71 people died. Many families were hurt deeply by these deaths. The fact there was a school group on the plane, it just makes this situation all the more horrific. There was a lot of people affected by this. The majority of people, they cheered for Vitaly. They supported what he had done. He was seen as a man serving justice. Skyguide had been under investigation for the last two years. This was ongoing. And after Peter Nielsen was murdered, but before Vitaly's trial, a full report was released detailing every mistake made that night in the control room, which led to that plane crash. And I have to say, Peter Nielsen may have been on duty that night, but it's possible anyone in his position that night may have had the same problems that he was faced with and the same mistake could have happened. This report exposes so much unprofessionalism in which Skyguide, how they were operating, how Skyguide was operating. Peter Nielsen, he was on night shift that night. He started at 5.30 p.m. So he gets to work 5.30 p.m. He was working with one other controller. That controller told Peter about three and a half hours into the shift, he was tired and then just left to sleep in another room. 
Yes, you heard me. Abandon his post to go sleep in another room. Sky Guide knew this happened. They knew that this happened all the time and they never did anything about it. This left Peter to man not only his station, but also his sleeping co-worker's station. First, we have Peter doing the job of two men. This is where it starts. Peter's doing the job of two men. That's hard enough. They have two people doing controls for a reason. Now he's down to just doing it himself. And this is a very important job. Very important job. Then maintenance workers come in. These maintenance workers tell Peter, hey, we have to shut down a lot of stuff, including the phone lines while we do this maintenance. Now, not only is Peter the only one manning two stations, but now he's doing it with limited equipment as the telephone systems would need to be shut down for this radar equipment maintenance uh, for six hours. This is going to take six hours. It's by this point, it's starting to sound like Peter, he's trying to play a game of chess blindfolded with one hand tied behind his back, but yet he perseveres. He keeps going. Why he didn't go wake up his lazy ass coworker, I don't know, but he keeps doing his job and this other guy's job. And now he's lacking a lot of stuff he needs to do to do the job of two people, to do the job of one person he's already lacking. Anyways. Peter has to give attention to his co-worker station because there is a flight requesting to land. So he's got his first, his first problem has arose here. This flight was late coming in and the airport's runway they wanted to land at, it was closed. So Peter had to call this airport, which is the Frederick Schaefer Airport in Germany. And he had to call this airport to make sure that this flight, flight 1135, can proceed to land. But the phone lines, they're down, which means he can't call this airport, which also means he can't help this plane. So he's trying to figure this out. As Peter is, is doing his co-worker's job, trying to figure out how to land this plane at an airport that's runways are closed and he needs to call, but he can't call, his station now needs attention. And he has already given the DHL cargo plane clearance to ascend to 36,000 feet as per requested by the pilot to save fuel. Flight 2937 is radioing in that they are at 36,000 feet. Peter, he's running back and forth trying to do two jobs at once, and he's not realizing he has two planes at the same altitude that are going to cross paths. It seemed like Flight 1135 really wanted to land, and Peter didn't know what to do without a phone. So he told them, hey, you need to contact the Frederick Schaefer airport directly by radio and request landing clearance. And Flight 1135, they did this. Peter, he, I could just imagine he would have been stressed at this point. He would have been sweating. He's got both computers needing attention. He's got planes in the sky wanting to land. He's got closed runways. He's got phone lines down and his coworker is sleeping. While all this is happening, there's another control station in Germany and it's watching their screens and they can see the DHL flight and flight 2937. They can see them on their screens and they're thinking, holy shit, they're going to collide. But because of jurisdiction laws, they can't contact the pilots. 
This air controller tries to call Peter to warn him, but the phone lines are down. The call doesn't go through. And Peter, he's busy on his coworker's computer trying to help this other plane land. So Peter, he runs back over to his computer where he sees the two planes are going to collide at 36,000 feet in the air. And he realizes, oh shit, I've got two planes flying at the same altitude and they're going to cross paths. He realizes this, but he only has one minute before the collision. That's when he notices one minute before. And it's not enough time. One minute is not enough time to correct this, but he's going to try. So Peter, he radios the passenger plane, the flight 2937, and he tells them, hey, you have to descend a thousand feet. This would have made it so the DHL cargo plane would have flown right over top of the passenger plane. But this is where it gets a little bit confusing and messy. The DHL cargo plane could not reach Peter because he's telling flight 2937 to descend. Peter's busy and he's the only person there. So the DHL cargo plane, they can't reach him. And because since he's the only one manning the controls, the, the DHL cargo flight 611, they have to hold. But there's no time to hold. Both these aircrafts have what's called traffic collision avoidance systems built into them. And they are there so planes do not crash into each other. And from what I understand, these systems notify the pilots if they are on a crash course into another plane. And it will tell the pilot to either descend or ascend. Passenger flight 2937's collision avoidance was saying ascend. Well, the DHL flight 611, theirs was saying to descend. Had Peter not tried to intervene and both pilots listened to their systems, this accident never would have happened. Peter told flight 2937 to descend 1,000 feet despite what their system was telling them to do. The DHL cargo plane couldn't get a hold of Peter, so they did listen to their system, which also told them to descend 1,000 feet. Flight 2937, passengers and crew would have seen the DHL cargo plane coming at them, and there was nothing they could do. It was too late. The cargo plane went right through the passenger plane, breaking it into multiple pieces like a piece of plastic. Both planes went down with everyone in them. Since the passenger plane was torn into multiple pieces, people were thrown from the cabin and left to free fall, plummeting to the earth. As this is happening, flight 1135 lands safely at Frederick Schaefer Airport and Peter has no idea the planes have collided until he notices the bleeps on his computer that were once the DHL flight and flight 2937 has disappeared. Peter did the best he could and I don't believe he was completely at fault here. He was fighting a losing battle. There was too much going against him to not have something like this happen either that night or another night. Sky Guide allowed unsafe practices unofficially, but they still allowed it. And a lot of people suffered because of this. Peter himself was actually treated for traumatic stress after this incident. This affected him very badly, as you could imagine. 
So who's responsible then? After this report document is released, Vitaly's trial happens. In 2005, Vitaly was found guilty of premeditated killing. I'm unfamiliar with this charge, but I guess it's kind of like first-degree manslaughter. I'm not really sure. His sentencing, though, doesn't really match something that would be like first-degree manslaughter because he's sentenced to eight years, uh, but he gets out after two years. And some of that time, some of the, that two years, it was served in a, a psychiatric institution. And when he did go into the prison system, the inmates cheered and rejoiced at his arrival. To them, he was a hero. In 2006, 71 charges were brought against Skyguide for negligent manslaughter, which included eight employees who were there that night to oversee the control center. Clearly, they did a really bad job at overseeing because one of the, their employees was sleeping and the other one was overwhelmed. And this maintenance, this scheduled maintenance, it didn't, it didn't allow an emergency phone line. It didn't allow Peter to know what equipment would be down, what he could count on, what he, what he couldn't count on. And it just didn't seem like this was well organized. There was a lot of things that Peter needed that were essentially life-saving tools. And he just, he didn't have any of these available. Those overseers, they denied that they did a bad job. And they threw all the blame onto Peter and the sleeping guy. Four out of eight of those employees, nothing ever happened to. Uh, the other four, they were found guilty on the negligent manslaughter charge, but their punishment wasn't even a slap on the wrist. One of out of those four had to pay 150 Swiss francs fine, which isn't much at all. And the other three had one year suspended sentences. That's it. That's it. Because of this guilty verdict, though, Sky Guide, they had no choice but to finally say, hey, we were responsible for all those men, women, and children dying in that horrific accident. Then Sky Guide gave some of the families, I think it was like 30, it wasn't even all of them, it was like 30 of the families who lost someone in that accident, a very small payout, very small payout, still. No justice has been served. None of this at all is sounding like any justice has been served. By 2007, Vitaly, he was back in Russia. And when he got back to Russia, people were cheering for him. People thought of him as a hero for doing what he had did in Switzerland. His career thrived and he, he did. He went on to live a good life, but he never stopped missing his family. Then something I found kind of odd happened. And maybe this is a, a Swiss thing. But the Swiss government told Vitaly that he had to pay them for the time he spent in their prison. This was a bill of over 150,000 US dollars. Vitaly said no. He refused to pay this. He was like, go away. I'm no way. I'm not going to pay for you holding me in prison. 10 years after the crash, he went to visit the memorial in Germany. There was a 10-year memorial for the, the planes crashing, and he was arrested because he never paid the Swiss government for his own 
prison time and he got arrested in, in Germany for this. He was able to be escorted back to Russia and not pay the fees, but he did miss the 10-year memorial. Things aren't over for Vitaly though. At the age of 62, Vitaly had married again and he he married a younger woman and this allowed him to father twins, a boy and a girl. As far as I know, to this day, he has never showed any remorse for his actions and he stands by what he did. This is a wrap on this week's case. I Oh, I did want to add in, there were some movies made surrounding this case. I can't say how accurate they are. I haven't watched them. Um, they may be just inspired by it, but there is an American one called Aftermath, which stars Arnold Schwarzenegger, which Vitaly, he, he gave a very bad review of this movie. As he said, Arnold did not portray his, his true character. So I think it got really Hollywood Asked, a bit too Hollywood-esque for Vitaly. There is also a Russian one, which I have heard very little about, but it's called Unforgiven, and it's centered around uh, this case. Again, I don't know how, how accurate it is. So if you, I haven't watched those movies. If you want to check them out, let me know how they are. <laughs> uh, also, please take a moment to rate Hell No. Maybe you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, if your podcast allows it please give me a five-star rating. I would really appreciate that and it helps my podcast grow. Also, if you want to follow Hell No on TikTok and Instagram, you can do so at hellno underscore a true crime podcast. Thanks for listening and see you next week.